0: Well, good morning, family. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Welcome as well to those of you who are watching at home. How good to gather together with one another and with our Lord Jesus this morning. Thank you, musicians, for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, Wonderful songs, all of those, and I love the, the message there. Before we dig into the Word, let's join together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are so grateful for your many blessings to us. Thank you for uh, for sending your Son to rescue us and to give us life and eternal life. Thank you for the blessing you give us of a church family and what a joy it is to gather this morning. Uh, we we pray for those who, who are at home right now, Father, keep them well, and we, we long for the day when this pandemic is done. We pray you'd bring an end to it soon, that we might all physically be together once again. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you give us to, to be your ambassadors. It is a privilege as well as a responsibility that you've given to us to be ambassadors for Christ. Thank you for enabling us to, to partner with so many to serve uh, not only here in our community but around the world. That you have blessed us financially that we might be a part of this mission around the world. Thank you for how much you enabled us to do this year. We pray that in this coming year as the needs continue to grow that you will enable us as well to expand uh, our part in your work in this world. Father, we uh we ask your prayer we ask your your hand to be upon uh the Anne Blank's family. We're thankful that uh she is where she longed to be with you. And uh Father, we just pray for comfort for, for the family. And Father, we pray for Malia as she heads out to to join the Air Force or to, to begin boot camp. We ask your grace upon her and for safety for her, and that you would enable her to be a witness for Christ uh, while she is there. And now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that we would have ears that are attentive and open to hear your voice, and that we would have hearts that, that uh, not only hear the word, but that then become doers of it. So, Father, may your word change us this morning and make us more like Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles if you don't have one. There's one in the pew in front of you, and to turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're beginning this morning a new series for the next eleven weeks looking at the life of Samuel, one of the most remarkable men in the pages of Scripture and I trust that as we go through and look at his life that we will discover some wonderful lessons for us today and in these weeks ahead. Samuel's story begins in the absolute worst of times. I know we think that times are pretty bad today and they are, but I don't think they were any worse, as a matter of fact, they probably aren't as bad as the things were when Samuel comes on to the stage of scripture. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Aaron did a marvelous message, by the way, and uh, appreciate him so much. Looking at the book of Habakkuk, and one Sunday we did the whole book, and he took us back on a whirlwind tour of some history to set the stage. So not to be outdone, as I come here, I, I, I realize we need to set the stage a little bit for this series as we look here at the life of Samuel. Uh, so I have to do a quick little history lesson. Uh, you remember that God worked through Moses to bring the Israelites, God's people, out of Egypt and uh, take them to first of all down to Sinai. You know they had to cross the Red Sea. You remember the great party of the Red Sea and all all of those things. They come down to Mount Sinai, get the law that God gives to for them through Moses, and they. Then they go up to the Promised Land. There's a little detour of 40 years because, and we won't get into all of that story. And then they get on the east bank of the uh, Jordan River, prepare to enter the land under, under Joshua. And God takes them into the land of of Canaan, the promised the land that had been promised to their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they take the land and settle. In the land of Canaan, it's divided up among the twelve tribes of Israel. We would think of them as states or counties, actually, because Israel's not that big of a place. And they settled there. And finally, now that they are in the land of promise, they are ready, I am sure, to start receiving all the blessings that God had promised them there and promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Israel was supposed to live in the land as a as a family group, really. It was the twelve clans of Israel. And they were to live there as a combination of families, as a under a theocracy, meaning that God is their king. And the law of the land was to be the law that God had given through Moses. And when they did that, God promised them great blessings. The problem is that as Right after Joshua dies, the people start to forget God. And instead of living according to God's ways, they, first of all, neglect to do what God had told them to do, which is finish removing all the Canaanites out of the land. And they didn't do that. And so instead, they started becoming like the Canaanites and following the gods of the Canaanites. And that began a period of 400 years of history that are recorded in the Bible in the book of Judges. And I need to set that stage because that's what comes leads right into where we are here as we open up 1 Samuel. This time of the judges was a time that was filled with idolatry as they followed the gods of the Canaanites. It was filled with immorality and corruption and wickedness and violence. These things were rampant among the people who were supposed to be the people of God. Moreover, they were often attacked by enemies from the outside And they were often oppressed by these people and many times they were, they were under the, they were in subjection to, they were under the control and the rule of these outside peoples. And it was during those times that the Israelites, after a while, whether it was a year or ten years, in some cases twenty years or so of this oppression, that they would finally say, they would remember God and cry out and say, God, help us! And God would raise up a deliverer, a judge who would bring them back to God and deliver them from the oppressors. The problem is that very soon after all of that was over and they settled back into nice, peaceful life, they began to forget God. And the cycle repeated again and again and again and again and again and again. again. Some 15 cycles in this time of the Judges. That period of time is best summed up in the last words of the book of Judges. It was the dark ages of Israel's history, and the book closes with these words, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of chaos and evil. And into the darkness of those days, God moved and He raised up a man. This man, Samuel. Samuel, God worked through Samuel to transform Israel spiritually and politically. He was the last of the judges. He led a revival among the people. He delivered them from their enemies and he anointed the first kings of Israel, transitioned uh, Israel into the period of the kings. So with that background, now we're ready to jump into the story. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. I hope you got your Bibles open and just follow along as I read. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah the name of the other Panina and Panina had children but Hannah had no children Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord Now on the day when Elkanah sacrificed he would give portions to Panina his wife and to all her sons and daughters But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So we have a man, Elkanah, who's from Ramathiam Zophim. And from this point on, we will never call it that. We'll call it Rama, which is the shorter version of the word. And it's used down in verse 19, so it's legit. He's from Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem. Just to help us get a little picture of where that is, it's um, a little north and to the west. He doesn't tell us here in Samuel, but over in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, we learn that Elkanah is a Levite. He's from the the tribe of Levi. That's the tribe where the priests come from and those who serve in in the temple and the teachers And according to the law, they didn't get one of those little counties or states in the land. They were to live in various cities scattered out through designated cities, scattered throughout the different tribes of Israel so that they were there to be the teachers and those who pointed the people to the Lord. Unfortunately, for the most part, they didn't do their job. So that's Elkanah. He's of the tribe of Levi, though it tells us he's from Ephraim, the area designated to the tribe of the of Ephraim and we see here it says he had two wives and that immediately raises many of our eyebrows going hmm we have to understand if we look back at scripture carefully the the Old Testament never expressly in the Old Testament law never expressly forbade polygamy having more than one wife however if we read the scriptures we also see it never portrays Polygamy in a positive way. It never gives it in a good light. In fact, God's stated plan for marriage, if we go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2, and we see there that God created Adam and Eve, and, and it says, and it gives at the end of chapter 2, God's plan for marriage. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And we see it specifically stated as well in the New Testament And making it very plain, God's plan has always been from the beginning, one man, one woman joined together in the bonds of marriage for life. That's God's plan for marriage. Whenever that that plan is departed from, whenever it's violated, whether it's by multiple partners at at one time in polygamy or whether it's by a succession of partners in divorces, you always end up with problems. Whenever we go against God's plan, we end up with problems. And so we see it here illustrated in this story. We see that that polygamy provides fertile grounds for rivalry and contention rather than a good foundation for harmony and happiness in the home. We see that Elkanah has his favorites between Hannah and Penina. He loves Hannah. He gives her extra stuff. Hannah is likely the first wife, probably older. And we read here she has no children, which is a big embarrassment, a big shame in that culture. Panina has many children. You noticed, might have noticed it said that it gives to all her sons and daughters. That doesn't mean one or two. It doesn't mean just a couple. It means a whole scad, you know, a whole bunch of them. She's got children running out her ears. As it were, and, but she knows she's not the favorite. And so there's rivalry here. And she mercilessly, it tells us, she mercilessly taunts and harasses Hannah. Every year, it says, they make the journey to Shiloh, which is about 15 miles north of Rama, where they live. And they go there to worship. They go there to worship because that's where the tabernacle is. The tabernacle that houses the Ark of the Covenant was moved there when they came into the land, and that's where it stayed. It's been there for now some 400 years. We usually think of the center of worship for the Israelites as is Jerusalem, and it will be about 100 years from now. But for now, it's at Shiloh, and that's where they go. When they, when you come to bring a sacrifice at the temple, a part of the sacrifice you bring is burnt up on the altar as an offering to God. And a portion, a designated portion of the sacrifice, according to the law, is to be given to the priests, as we'll see next week, to be given to the priests for their support and for the support of the the worship of the people. And then the rest of the sacrifice, the bulk of the sacrifice, goes back to the family, and it's taken for a big meal, a big celebration. And so that's the picture you have here. They have come, they've brought their sacrifice, and now they sit down for the big family meal. It's Christmas, it's Thanksgiving, think that. And we sit down for the big family dinner. But for this family, what should be a time that's focused on God and focused on worship and a time that is supposed to be a time of a great family feast, a great family fun, a great family party. Instead, it is a time that is filled with tension, and it's a time that's filled with contention. As Peninnah is making Hannah's life miserable. So verse 7, And so it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Hannah, she... Panina used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept, and she would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So there's the picture. Year after year, likely, by the way, not just once a year, but three times a year, as the law says that they're supposed to come three times a year at least every man, and usually the family goes along. If they went up for all three feasts, it's happening three times a year, every time. Probably at home, these two wives probably live in two tents, or maybe two little houses next to each other, or maybe it's two rooms, but somehow I think they have less contact than when they're going on the family vacation and the family trip to worship here at the tabernacle. You know how it is when you go on vacation. You're all in close quarters together. And there it is. And they have to sit down at the big table for the big Christmas meal. And year after year after year, Hannah has put up with all of the little verbal jabs. All of the little insults. All of the little snide, snippy comments. As they walk that long journey there. And as they camp out and as they eat the meal she has put up with it year after year and this year she breaks she's had the last straw she's taken all she can take if they got there in a car she would sit in the parking lot in the car and not get out and cry her eyes out but they didn't have cars so here she is she's at the dinner she has completely lost her appetite all she can do is cry She is broken. I think Elkanah, her husband, means well, but everything he does probably make things worse. Typical man. Extra portions for Hannah doesn't fill the emptiness in her heart. And all it does is make Penina more jealous and angry and spur her on to give Hannah a harder time. Elkanah realizes his wife is really miserable and he goes and tries to console her. Hannah, dear, why are you crying? Duh! Is he blind? <laughs> is he ignorant? Why are you sad? Aren't I more to you than ten sons? In the first service, all the women laughed as we read this. I didn't even get here to explain it. They were just laughing because they get it. What am what if a man, <laughs> he just doesn't get it, he'll never win the Mr. Sensitivity Award like this. I would note, by the way, that Panina has been brutal and merciless towards Hannah, but there is no indication here that Hannah has ever responded likewise. Matter of fact, the implication of this text is that Hannah has borne all of the grief She has borne all of the insults. She has borne all of the taunts. And she has done it in quietness and with grace. By the way, that's her name. Hannah means grace. Hannah appears to be a good and a righteous person. In fact, I think the more that I have looked at her these this last week or so i think she is probably one of the most godly women to grace the pages of the bible not only by the way that she responds or doesn't respond here to panina but as we go on and we will see here in a minute her prayer and and her her song that she sings later we will discover that she is of deep spiritual depth She exhibits wisdom, she exhibits grace, and she exhibits great faith. This is a godly lady. And despite that, she is oppressed, she is depressed, while her oppressor is blessed. Have you ever seen that kind of situation before? A godly person who just continues to get dumped on, while the person who is ungodly just goes on and get get blessed. David, you remember, complained about that at times. Well, may I tell you, if you haven't been a believer in Christ very long, when you stick around a while, you'll realize a reality that the Bible makes actually quite clear. If you live godly, if you seek to serve and to follow Jesus Christ, God will allow you sooner or later to go through deep hurt, deep difficulty and pain. It's a horrible situation. Hannah has reached the end of her rope. She's tried to do everything right, and yet everything is wrong. And her situation seems hopeless, and she is broken. And as I was writing these words, I realized that some of you sitting here this morning, some of you sitting at home watching, Some of you may find yourselves in desperate circumstances. Maybe not Hannah's. I doubt anyone here is one of two wives in this situation. (laughs) But you may be sitting here this morning in your Sunday finest with a smile on your face, but in your heart you feel like sitting in the car in the parking lot crying your eyes out because your marriage is a mess. Your family is broken. Your job or your career just ended. Or maybe your business just failed. Or maybe a close loved one just died. Or maybe you're in the midst of a health crisis or someone you love. Or maybe you are intensely lonely. Maybe you're depressed. You find yourself like Hannah, just broken. And if you're not there, some of you probably right now are headed there and you just don't know it yet. Because sooner or later, I think we all end up there. Do we not? What do we do when we find ourselves broken, distressed, depressed? And everything looks absolutely hopeless. What do we do? when the remaining time we have this morning as we continue through the story, and all I 'm doing this morning is just reading through and commenting as we go, I want us to notice six responses Hannah has, six things Hannah does that I think are important things for us to do when we face the distresses and the dis- and the uh, the problems and the, and the depressions of life and the oppressions of life. We pick up her story in verse nine. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. The first thing I notice here about Hannah, the first thing that she does in response to all of this as she is broken and hopeless, as she turns to prayer. And she prays passionately. As soon as she can manage to get away from the table, the first place she heads is to the sanctuary. And there she goes and pours her heart out to God. She goes to prayer first before she goes and takes matters in her own hands. I don't know about you, but my tendency is to go and take matters in my own hand first. But she doesn't. She doesn't do all the things we could think of that we might do in her situation. She doesn't respond back to Panima and just, and go back and just give her a what for. You know, write down, you know, half dozen really good put downs. You know, so she has them ready when she can just, she doesn't do that. She somewhere missed assertiveness training. <laughs> she doesn't resort to another little tool we like to use, gossip or slander at the little, you know, water cooler there by the tabernacle. I don't know where they went, to, you know, the ladies or the people to hang out. But she doesn't go and just start talking. You won't believe what I have to put up with. You know, the other wife. <laughs> Nor does she go to Elkanah with demands. You deal with that woman or else. (laughs) You know, we could come up with maybe a half dozen other good responses that we might tackle. But what does she do? She goes to prayer first. May I remind us that prayer ought to be our first and our primary response, not the last thing we do. We tend to use prayer as a little blessing that we tack on to our actions and our attempts here to fix things rather than make it where we start. Where prayer is the beginning place and the midpoint and what we do during and what we do at the end of whatever actions we feel that God wants us to do after we start praying. See, that's what it should be, but unfortunately, if you're like me, that's not how we usually respond. Hannah is the first thing she does. This is what Scripture calls for us to do. Philippians chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be upset, don't be worried, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's where we should start. But secondly, she believes that God is in control, that God is sovereign. It's interesting, as she addresses her prayer to God, notice that she calls God the Lord of hosts. Lord, Yahweh, or Yehovah, Sabaoth. If you ever sing that old hymn where it says, Lord, Sabaoth, his name, you wonder, what does that mean? It means, Lord, or Yahweh, Sabaoth means Lord of hosts, Lord of the mighty armies. It's talking about God who is sovereign, who is in charge, who is in control. It's a very common Named for God in the Old Testament, some two hundred and eighty one times it's used in the Old Testament, but it doesn't show up here till this chapter, and it first comes from the lips of this dear, humble little lady. And by praying, Lord of hosts, what she's saying is, God, you are bigger than my problem is. As we noted earlier, godly people often suffer greatly but it's not because God has forgotten us or God has neglected us. As God's people, we find comfort when we realize that we have a sovereign God. A God who is in charge if you look back at verse 4, you'll notice something. When it talks about that that she can't have children, what it says there at the end of verse 5, it says what? The Lord had closed her womb. And just in case we missed it, it says it again in verse 6, because the Lord had closed her womb. In other words, the problems came into her life not despite the fact that she that, that God is there, but because God has allowed the problem to come into her life. May I say the reality is, We have a sovereign God. The Bible tells us that. And what that means is that every problem that comes into your life comes because God has allowed it to come into your life. And you think, well, that means that God must not love me. No, it doesn't. It's exactly the opposite. What the Bible also teaches in Hebrews chapter 12, we won't go there, we studied there just a few months ago. Hebrews chapter 12. You can see it also in James chapter 1 where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Why? Because God is using them. God allows trials and difficulties and sufferings and distresses to come into our life for our good, to grow us, mature us, to to cause us to to reach out to Him, to call out to Him, to cling to Him like we never would if we never had a problem. I love the old song, goes back to like the 60s or 70s, the old gospel song, Through It All. He said, I thank Him for the storms that He's brought me through, because if I never had a problem, I'd never know that He could solve them. I'd never know what faith in Him could do. So through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Hannah believes that God is sovereign. That is key to what helps her get through this distressing and oppressing time. Romans 8.28, there's a promise there in Scripture. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God loves you. If it's your intention to follow Him, He promises everything works for your good. Even Panina is working for Hannah's good. Well, this third thing I see here about Hannah is that she cares about God's purposes. I see it here in verse 11, where again, as she talks to God, she said, but if you, if you will give your servant, a, to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That word, by the way, or that little phrase, no razor. Hannah's making a vow, by the way, she's making a promise to God. And the vow is a Nazarite vow. The Old Testament law made a provision for someone to take a vow before God, which was a vow of dedication. God, I will be wholly devoted to you. Part of the vow was you wouldn't let a razor touch the head. You would let the hair continue to grow as long as the vow would last. And you could make the vow as long as you wanted, a week, a month, a year, or whatever. And there were certain, many other things that were a part of this, of this vow. But the whole point of all these other things was to say that this person is devoting themselves purposefully and exclusively to God. There are two people mentioned in the Old Testament that were made a Nazarite from birth. Samuel here, the, the boy who's about to be born, is one. The other was another guy who many of you will know his name when I tell you the story if you don't know already. You remember him because he was a guy of long hair. You remember him because he was a guy of superhuman strength. You remember him a guy who had a bad haircut because of a lady named Delilah, And it was Samson. Samson was a judge in Israel. Here's the thing you may not have ever thought about. Samson is probably a judge in Israel right now as Hannah is there. If not right then, it wasn't very long before, probably during her lifetime, Samson was the judge. Of course, we know that Samson didn't live up to that vow. Samson didn't live a life dedicated to God. Samson primarily lived his life all about himself, if you know the story. And I don't think it's much of a big stretch. I don't think it's much of a stretch at all to think that this might be what's going through Hannah's mind. I'm putting words in her mouth, and it's not in the Scripture, okay? So this is my my thinking. But she might be thinking, God, we're in a big mess here. Our people have turned away from you. The priests are corrupt. We'll see that next week. Our leader, who is supposed to be a man dedicated to you, Was only living for himself. We are in bondage to the Philistines. They are oppressing us and ruling over us. We need help. We need, we need revival. We need, we need rescue. God, I want a son. You need a man to live for you. If you give me a son, I will give him back to you to be the man that Samson failed to be man dedicated to you all the days of his life. I think that's what she's praying. You know, it's not wrong for us, by the way, to pray for what we need. Jesus taught us to do that. and he, In the model prayer, we studied it last year. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Pray for our needs. But you know what he also taught us to pray? Right before that, before we pray for our needs, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not wrong to pray for our needs, but we should most especially pray that God's will be done, that God's purposes be accomplished. Long before Jesus taught us to pray that way, Hannah prays and connects in her prayer, her desires with God's purposes. What a wise woman. But she doesn't just say, God, you need to do this and demand it from God. I don't know if you noticed in her prayer three times so far she uses the word your servant. God, I'm at your disposal. Whatever you want, I want. But God, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. What a marvel. Verse 12, As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, Lord, I'm not I'm not. I'm not drunk. <laughs> She said, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Hannah was praying fervently. She's praying passionately. Her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out. And talk about me being misunderstood. Here's the high priest, the spiritual leader of Israel, as she's pouring out her heart to God, and he thinks she's drunk. It's a sad commentary, perhaps, on the, the character of the people that Eli sees come into the, into the sanctuary every day. People who come, for the most part, people who've abandoned God, they're going through the ritual of religion while they, their heart is following other gods. And they come there, and their focus is not on God. It's not on worship. Their focus is on party. And so they come, and they're partying outside, and some of them get drunk, and they come into the temple, and they're drunk. Maybe that's why Eli says, Lady, put away your your drink, because he sees it all the time. Or maybe it's a sad commentary on Eli, who he doesn't recognize fervent prayer when he sees it because he doesn't really know fervent prayer. Maybe it's both. For whatever reason, he has misunderstood her. And by the way, may I just say, if you, if you really aim to follow Christ in your life, if your aim is to really live for God, sooner or later people are going to misunderstand and misjudge you. You're doing what's right and people are going to judge you wrongly. Even sometimes the people of God will do that. Just expect it. It will happen. When Eli hears her, her story, he doesn't apologize for misjudging her, but he does change his tune and he blesses her and he says verse 17, Then Eli answered, Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and she ate. And her face was no longer sad. Hannah leaves the sanctuary a changed woman. She isn't crying anymore. Her face is no longer downcast. She's got a smile on her face. It's brightened. She's got her appetite back. She gets back to the family dinner table and she sits down and she starts enjoying food. What's going on? But her circumstances haven't changed at all she still has no children she still is going back to face more abuse from panina she still is going back to a husband who loves her but who really doesn't understand her so what has changed i believe verse 18 is describing what happens when You pour your heart out to God, and then you rest in His character. She is living now in faith, in trusting that God is the Almighty God. That God is a loving God. That God is a God with a purpose and a plan, and He's working His plan, and I can rest in Him. I have done all I can do. I have poured out my, my problems to the Lord, and now I'm going to leave it in His hands. I read it a few minutes ago from Philippians 4, which tells us to go take our problems to the Lord in verse 6. But let's keep going. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Make your, let your request be made known to God. And that, what's the next verse? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we will take our request to God and we'll leave our problems at His feet, leave them in His arms, what it says is that there that a peace that God will give will come that surpasses understanding. It means it doesn't make sense. It defies logic. But it's from God and it's real. Verse 19, they arose early in the morning and they worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The next morning, nothing had changed and yet everything was different. They got up, they went to church, they worshipped. Hannah was at peace. They went home to Ramah. And soon after that, God answers Hannah's prayer. That's what it means, by the way, when it says that God remembered her. It doesn't mean that God had forgotten her. And He goes, oh, yeah, Hannah. Oh, yeah. Not at all. It just means that God answered her prayer. And it go on, verse 20, And in due time, Hannah conceived, and she bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she'd weaned him. So Hannah has a son. She names him Samuel, which means heard of God. In other words, God heard me. And those years of sadness and those years of brokenness are gone and forgotten in the joys of motherhood. And when it was time, the next time to go to Shiloh to worship, Hannah says to her husband, I don't want to go. I want to stay home until it's time to take Samuel to be there for good. And Elkanah, who is obviously knows about this vow and this commitment and is is in agreement with it, says okay. And so they go on down to Shiloh and, or up to Shiloh and he stays, or she stays there. By the way, by Hebrew custom, she says she's gonna stay there until he's weaned by human Hebrew custom. That's, that's three to four years. And I'm sure that those three to four years flew by quickly. For all of us as parents, we remember back those years. They were gone like that, aren't they? How much more when you realize that it's just, that's all you have. The days fly by. And then quick Hannah comes face to face with another point of crisis. She had made a promise to God to give him her precious son. We can only imagine the thoughts that must have gone through her mind and the pain is her heart that went in her heart as she began one day to pack up his little three-year-old things into a little bag to carry with him to the tabernacle to leave him there. The opportunities to rethink, am I sure this is the right thing? Do, do, do I really have to do this? You know, lots of people make promises to God. We make There's vows to tell the truth. There's vows of marriage. There's the vows like the, if you get me out of this mess, God, I will. People make them all the time. And people think very little of breaking those vows. I cannot find in the Bible where the Bible requires us to make vows to God. Nor do I find in the Bible even where it encourages us to make vows to God. But it does give some, some instruction to people who make vows. And one of the biggest is this. When you make a vow, you better do it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you not vow than that you should vow and not pay. What will Hannah do now? Will she really go through with this commitment she made? Verse 24, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flower and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And They slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, She said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. I think that's meaning Samuel from that point on. He served God. The fifth thing I notice about Hannah, even in the midst of crisis, she keeps her promises. She keeps her word. Hannah made a vow and she promised, that she promised the Lord. The Lord had done his part, so now she does her part. She brings Samuel, as it was, with his little suitcase to the priest to live at the tabernacle and serve God there. And I marvel, by the way, as I read this, I marvel that Eli hasn't been forewarned about this. He's sitting there serving in the temple and she shows up with his little boy. She says, you remember me? Three years ago, four years ago, I was standing here. I was praying. This is the answer to my prayer. Here you go. By the way, parents don't get any ideas. <laughs> you yeah. know. If uh, Bobby is, you know, 16 and you've just, you're up to here, don't bring him by and leave him for Pastor Aaron or me. You know, I suggest goodwill or something. Um, (laughs) They take anything. (laughs) No. uh, Seriously, can you imagine the amazing faith it took for Hannah to take her son, her only son at that point, and take him that day and leave him in the hands and the care of Eli, especially as we'll learn next week about Eli and his family, the faith it took for her to leave him there. She keeps her word not knowing what will happen with her son. But note, she is not leaving Samuel in the hands of Eli. She's leaving Samuel in the hands of God. Her words, I have lent him to the Lord. By the way, lent lets us know she's not abandoning her son. (laughs) She is not just giving him up. It means that she still has a vested interest. See, when we lend something, we still have an interest in it. We still have a stake in it. This is still her son that she loves, that she prizes, that she, I'm sure, prays for. She's lending him to the Lord, expecting that God is going to do something great with him. She keeps her word and she gives up her precious and only child, not knowing that God will bless her with more. He does. He blesses her with five more children. But she doesn't know any of that. All she knows is she asked God for a son and if God would give it this son to her, she would give him back. And she does what she said. That is marvelous faith. And that is marvelous commitment to keep our promise, her promise. There is one last thing, by the way, God takes that amazing faith and amazing commitment, and he uses that to change this nation. That's why I call this the prayer that reformed a nation because it did. But there's one more thing to learn from this dear lady, and I know I'm running long, and I'm sorry. I'll make it as quick as I can. Just a couple things. If I were in Hannah's shoes, and I admit my weakness, and I, that's why I say this lady is a marvelous lady of faith. Already she has blown me away and us away. But as I would, if I were her that day walking away from that, that tabernacle I would be bawling my eyes out I would weep and wail all the way back home and for the next few months at least but what happens with Hannah is truly extraordinary verse 1 chapter 2 after leaving her son in Shiloh verse 1 And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. She breaks out in a prayer in a song of praise. This is poetry. It's a song. She leaves her little three-year-old son there for the Lord. She will see him every time she comes to the tabernacle to worship. But he's no longer in her home. And rather than crying, she breaks out in praise. A marvelous song. You noticed if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at Mary's song, Mary the Mother of Jesus, you recall we mentioned she borrowed from this song. She quoted it several times in her song. It's a marvelous song. We don't have time to go through it, but I just want to notice something here. You see... What else do you do when you are in the the time of distress, when you are in the time of trouble, when you are broken? Worship God. It's what Hannah does here. It's what we see David do time after time after time in the Psalms when he is in deep, dark distress. He turns in worship to God and it changes his heart. It changes his attitude. It does that here for her. One of the greatest antidotes to discouragement, one of the greatest antidotes to worry, one of the greatest antidotes to depression is worship. Four things, and I'll just mention them, I won't detail them, but four things I see in this psalm that light her fire and give her joy. Four things. The first is, she says in verse one, I rejoice in your salvation. She has joy. Because God is her Savior. She rejoices in God's salvation. Secondly, she says in verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She has joy because she worships a God who is matchless in His greatness. There is no God like Him. There is no other God. He is the only true God. He is matchless in His greatness. Thirdly, she has joy because she recognizes that God is just. Look down in verse 3. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. In other words, God doesn't miss anything. And He's going to judge everything. In all the rest of the next verses, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, what you see is that God exalts the humble and he, he, uh, He will punish the wicked. He humbles the proud and he exalts the the, the humble. He 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 uh, he exalts and and helps the ri- helps the poor and it's just a marvel. She says God is is a just God. He's going to make everything okay. Lastly, and this is a wonder. The last verse of her psalm, verse eleven: The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. There is no king in Israel. She knows that a king is coming, and what's significant is that last word, the anointed. You know what that word is in Hebrew? It's the word for Messiah. Mashiach. In other words, she says, I know, God, that you have a plan. Starting all the way back with Eve, you promised that you were going to send... The seed of the woman, you are going to see send a special one. And the promise was made to Abraham about his seed. It would bless all the world. She doesn't know all the promises that are yet to be coming. And what's going to happen? But she's looking forward. God is going to send His anointed one, His King. And He's going to make everything okay. She's looking down to Jesus. Down the annals of history. See, God is our Savior. He's matchless in His greatness. God is just, and He's going to establish the Messiah. And because of that, Hannah goes, This isn't a bad day at all. My God is in charge. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Whatever is in your life, whatever's going on in this world right now, it's temporary. In the end, the Lord God of hosts will accomplish His purpose. He will rescue His people. All who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You go to the end of the book, to the book of Revelation at the very end. What do you see? We win. He makes everything. We can't live in depression. We can't live in worry and fear when we respond as Hannah has in these ways. Father, these are marvelous truths. They're far beyond us. Uh, We all struggle with these things. I do. I don't live these things out as I ought. But I thank you for this example, example in this marvelous woman whom You singled out in the worst of times. And it is through her faith that You brought into that dark time a Son who You used to transform the nation. Father, May we live in our times and in our situations, even as Hannah has set the example. May we pray passionately. May we believe that You are sovereign. May we rest in that. May we desire Your purposes. May we rest in Your character and keep your. may we keep our promises that we make to You and to others. Father, may we worship You. Then may You fill our lives with peace as well as with purpose. We ask in Jesus' name.